So we're just continuing in our chronological series through the Old Testament, following along, and we're basically pretty much at the beginning of the conquest narrative now, where the Israelites are going to conquer the Canaanites and take over their land. So there are lands east of the Jordan, which are part and parcel of the promised land that will be divided among the tribes of Israel. And then there are the majority of the land is west of the Jordan. And they're going to go in. The tribes from the east, remember from last week, are going to cross over with the other tribes to take over the western land and then return to their spot east of the Jordan River. But this is where we are. And we know that basically this conquest is a holy war. That this is commanded by God and the Israelites are to go in at the behest of God and kill everybody and destroy everybody in the promised land and take over their land. Now, this is developed, this typology, sorry, the typology of this is developed a couple ways in the New Testament. First, we, we see that there is another judgment coming upon God's enemies, which is foreshadowed and typified by the conquest of Canaan. We've seen, for example, in Revelation 9-11 to over the last couple of months, that the trumpets bring to mind the imagery of war signals, battle signals. And in Revelation, the trumpets are sounding as God is moving against His enemies. And so, in the end, God will judge unbelievers the way that God judged the Canaanites in the conquest narrative. This is one of the ways that the typology is developed. That the conquest of Canaan is God's judgment upon the Canaanites, which prefigures God's judgment of unbelievers at the end of all things. The other way that the conquest of Canaan, or the, the other primary way that the conquest of Canaan is developed typologically in the scriptures is that it is used to signify and, and foreshadow and parallel to some extent our war against our own hard-heartedness, our own disobedience, and our own unbelief. This is primarily from Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 where it contrasts the rest that Moses was unable to give and the rest that even Joshua was unable to give with the rest that Christ actually gives. And continually in Hebrews 3 and 4, the enemy which is to be conquered in order that we may obtain rest is not any people at all actually. Well, I shouldn't say that. It is people. It's just not other people. It's us. <laughs> and over and over in Hebrews 3 and 4, we see that the reason that um, we might not obtain the rest that Christ gives is because of hard-heartedness. It's because of unbelief. It's because of disobedience. And so what stands in the way of us taking possession of the rest that Christ will give us, which was typified and foreshadowed by the rest that was promised to the Israelites through Moses and then ultimately obtained through Joshua in, in the Old Covenant, 
what stands in the way of us inheriting that rest is unbelief, disobedience, hard-heartedness. So tonight, God's command to drive out the Canaanites goes with the second way that the typology is developed biblically. God's command to drive out the Canaanites utterly and entirely in this passage here in Numbers 33, verses 50 to 56, which we're looking at this evening, must be understood that we should war against our sins. The first clarification about this should go without saying, but world history has taught me that I should make this explicit. The correct application of this passage is neither genocide nor xenophobia or racism. The scripture nowhere teaches the inferiority of one race to another, nor legitimizes prejudicial treatment of another race simply by virtue of racial inferiority. Where there are commands in scripture which seem to be race-based, like here in this passage, one concern is Israel's purity and another concern is God's justice. So what is not happening in this passage is Numbers 33, 50-56 is not God saying that the inhabitants of the land are inferior and subhuman and that you are a superior race and that the land rightly belongs to you because you're a better race and so you should go in and drive out the inferior race. Nothing of the sorts is happening in this passage. As I said, one concern here is for Israel's purity. In 52, we see this. Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and destroy, and pardon me, and demolish all their high places. God is concerned that all the inhabitants of the land are driven out so that they don't, their religion is utterly wiped out of the land so that there is no syncretism in the land whereby the Israelites decide to be merciful and compassionate and let some of these religious uh, deviants remain in the land and then be corrupted by their religious deviancies. So this has nothing to do with uh, issue of the inferiority of those who dwell in the land of Canaan compared to the Israelites with respect to you know one race being inferior to another or any nonsense like that. This is a concern about Israel's religious purity. And that's one of the issues that's going on here in this passage. Another issue is God's justice. Verses 55 and 56, we read this. If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you, look here, here's the key phrase, as I thought to do to them. In other words, God's plan for this people is to wipe them out. And God's saying, look, if you let them live, 
then they're going to be troublesome to you, and I'm actually going to turn and wipe you out the way that I intended in the beginning to wipe them out. This implies that there was a judicial sentence passed by God which is the cause and basis of His command to the Israelites to go in and wipe out these Canaanites. It is God's plan, His judicial sentence that He has passed over these people that because of their sins the Israelites are going to go in and be His instrument of justice and drive them out of this land. So, as I said, it should go without saying, but we've seen these kind of passages really perverted to teach horrendous things throughout history. And the correct application of this passage is neither genocide nor xenophobia nor racism. The enemies let me say this carefully because there is a there is a real sense in which though Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and in that sense we're not to be enemies to anyone there is a sense in which other people are enemies to us so let me say this carefully I was about to say the enemies are not people out there but let me say it like this there is no conquest commanded of Christians whereby we go and fight against our enemies. There is no conquest commanded of Christians whereby we go displace our enemies from their homes. There is no conquest commanded of Christians where we see it as our right to exert ourselves by force upon other people and dispossess them and take what they have on the basis that it's our God-given right. There is no such command to Christians, and there never has been, in spite of what theologians of the past have said at various times and in various places. So things like the Christian Crusades, where they went up against the Muslims trying to battle over land, wrong. There is no command like that. That's not, that's not like a new conquest. Things like uh, the colonial period where Christian nations would go and take over land that belonged to the pagans under the auspices of supposedly that God had given them lands like this. All, all of that stuff is nonsense. This is not what these kinds of passages are designed to teach. There is indeed judgment coming upon unbelievers but it is not ours to bring it to them at the end of the sword. God will take care of that Himself. So, as I said, this passage before us tonight, Numbers 33, 50-56, ought to be developed in terms of its application to us along the second line of the way that the Scripture develops conquest imagery, which is that if we are going to go into the rest that Christ has won for us, the things that are in our way, the obstacles, is our unbelief, our disobedience, our hard-heartedness. In other words, our sins. And it is only by fighting and warring against our sins that we will enter the rest that Christ has won for us. This is the way we need to develop this tonight.
we need to mortify our sin. Mortify is an old word, but it comes from the Latin word mort, which means death. We must put our sins to death. We learn from this passage that we must do so, and that we must do so universally. Now, of course, we don't learn from reading this passage in a vacuum that we must put our sins to death and that we must put our sins to death universally. If someone had no Christian background whatsoever and had never read a single word or phrase of Scripture and all they were given was Numbers 33, 50 to 56, they would not be able to infer that we ought to put our sins to death and ought to put our sins to death universally. But if they were to go and read through the Old Testament, including Numbers 33, 50 to 56, and then they were to come to Hebrews, where it talked about, even after Joshua had brought them into the land, they still didn't have the ultimate rest that God had promised. And that rest was just a picture of something even greater and something even better. And Christ is the one who actually gives that ultimate better rest. And what stands in our way is our sin then such a person could infer that when we see this, it's a parable, so to speak, of what we need to do. We need to make war against our sin, and we need to drive it out entirely, and we need to give no quarter. This is a battle where, as they used to say of old, no quarter asked and no quarter given. This is a fight to the death. The old Puritan John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, And John Owen is seriously tough slugging. I'm a pretty strong reader, but I find John Owen very difficult to read. I would say, however, that he's also a goldmine. And if you can get through the difficulty of the old archaic language, and if you can get through the long, drawn-out arguments, 16thly, 17thly, there's a great deal we can learn from him. In his book, Mortification of, The Mortification of Sin, I read uh, relatively early in my Christian life, and I think that I think helped put me on a good path. But he said this, always be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. No quarter asked, no quarter given. This is a fight to the death one way or another. This is kill or be killed. This is, there is no parlay. There is, no, there is no surrender here, waving the white flag and ending up in a jail cell with bread and water. This is, you kill or you're going to be killed. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 13, we read this. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death or you mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. Look, in this war between flesh and spirit, it can't be both. The, the flesh is, as, as Galatians 5 tells us, lusteth against or desires against the spirit, desires what is contrary to the spirit. And likewise, the spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. And so you can't have, at one and the same time, the spirit gratified and the flesh gratified. 
This is something I tried to bring out in our study of Galatians 5. Though it is true in my life right now, in your life right now, there are, there are ways in which your life is pleasing to God right now, and there are ways in which it isn't. So it is with mine. And in that sense, your life can be a mixture of gratifying the desires of the Spirit and gratifying the desires of the flesh. But in any one instance, you cannot at the same time do something, you cannot do something that is at one and the same time pleasing to the flesh and pleasing to the Spirit. It's not possible. You cannot gratify your sinful nature at the same time as you gratify the Holy Spirit. So, what that means is in any given instance, there is a blow struck against the flesh or there is a blow struck against the Spirit. There is, in any one instance, an, an act of you killing sin or there is an act of sin killing you. This is what John Owen was talking about when he says this, always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There is no middle ground. We must mortify the desires of the flesh. Romans 8 tells us that this is, this is in fact a mark of those who belong to Christ. And that to fail to mortify sin is diagnostic of the fact that you are not Christ's. If you don't kill your sin, it is evidence that you are not Christ's. If you go through your days not fighting against your sin, not mortifying your sin, but just continually gratifying the desires of the flesh, you are not a genuine Christian. The work that we must do, and in fact will do, if we have been given new hearts, and more on that later, is to mortify the desires of the flesh. If we are to go into the promised land, we must drive out that which stands in our way, namely our sin. So we must mortify our sin. And we must do so, we see in this passage, universally. What I mean by that is, there's no, there's no area where we cherish a little sin. We can't say, well, I'm really doing a lot for the Lord. So I just have this little guilty little pleasure. You know, well, I really, I've been battling hard in this way, so I'm just going just gonna to indulge a little bit in this other way. We can't do that. We cannot leave little pet sins alive, cherished in some little cage somewhere. We can't just kennel up a little sin in our backyard and keep it there as a cherished little thing. We can't do that. We have to fight against sin universally. As it says in Numbers 33 here, If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them who you let remain shall be barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. This is what our sin is going to do to us too. If we just leave little cherished little instances of sin and little, little problems that we know are sinful, but we just say, well, 
you know, it balances out on the scale. I'm, I'm pretty much I'm fighting against him mainly, so not going to worry about this little thing. Look, that's going to be a barb to your eye and a thorn to your side, and it's going to bring you under the judgment of God. As God says here, then I shall do to you what I intended to do to them. It wasn't only unwise for the Israelites to leave the Canaanites in the land. It was actually sinful. It incurred God's judgment because God had commanded them to drive all the inhabitants out of the land. Likewise, it's not merely unwise, but it's actually sinful for us to give any quarter to sin in our lives. There's that famous passage where it says, avoid all appearance of evil. Well, this is used, misused often to mean don't let anyone even think you might be doing something evil. Don't let anyone perceive that maybe you might possibly be doing something evil. Well, what about, say, Jesus talking to the woman at the well in Samaria? Maybe someone looking on from afar would, would think, oh, maybe, maybe Jesus is, this is a loose woman. She's been with many men. Maybe Jesus is now trying to get with her. And that would be an appearance of evil. Right? It's used... This verse is misused often to say, like, don't do things that someone else might think are, is evil. But that's not what it really means or really teaches. What it really means and teaches is avoid evil in every form that it appears. So in other words, it's like, if it appears like that, avoid it. If it appears like that, avoid it. Well, what about if it appears like that? Avoid that too. Avoid evil in every form in which it appears. All of it is dangerous. All of it is sinful. And, and we ought not to give quarter to any of it. So we must mortify our sin and we must do so universally. We must avoid every appearance of evil. Now, this is important here to understand we must do so as a response to God's grace of justification from new hearts in the power of the Spirit. Listen here to this great gospel passage from Ezekiel 37. God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Now, just stop here and think about this. Who brought the Israelites into the land of Canaan in the first place? God. Thank you. Who, who brought the Israelites back from exile? God. Who's going to bring us into the rest that Christ has won for us? God. Right? Look at, what, look at what he says here. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses 
and from your idols I will cleanse you. Look, there's this work that God is going to do for His sinful, distraught, guilty people who need to be brought into a promised land. There is a work that God is going to do for them. He is going to cleanse them. He is going to sprinkle clean water on them, as it were, and He's going to bring them into the land that He has promised to bring them into. This is not a message of, like, get yourself into the land. Our hope has to be that Christ will bring me into His rest. That God has promised to bring me into His rest, and He he who has promised is faithful. He will surely do it. Right? Now, as it goes on here, it says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God justifies. He forgives uncleannesses. Then He gives a new heart. Then what, does he, then what do we do from our new heart? It says here, after He says, I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. So God justifies. God gives a new heart. God gives His Holy Spirit. And then we walk in His statutes and we are careful to obey His rules. We don't get ourselves from exile, as it were, into the promised land. As pilgrims and sojourners here, as strangers and exiles on the earth, we don't get ourselves into the promised land. We come out of our mother's womb guilty, condemned, in need of being sprinkled with water, cleansed from our uncleannesses, in need of being given new hearts, in need of being given the Spirit. And that's in fact exactly what God does for those whom He intends to bring into Christ's rest. And then He causes us to walk according to His statutes and to be careful to obey His rules. So this, none of this is meritorious. There's nothing that we did to deserve all of these blessings. All of this is free grace. And walking in God's statutes and being careful to obey His rules is something we do as a result of the grace He's given us. Not as something we do in order to get grace. Neither is this, as you can see here, neither is this a self-salvation project. There are things that God must do for us which we could not do for ourselves. Like sprinkling clean water on us so that we may be clean and being cleansed from our idols and being given new hearts and being given the Holy Spirit. These are things that only God could do for us. So this walking in His statutes and and being careful to obey His rules, this mortifying sin, it's not meritorious. And nor is it a self-salvation project. This is in response to what God has done for us. And this is in reliance upon the grace that God continually gives to us. When I was in Malawi in 2017, I was preaching through a translator. And I 
I was explaining that, that grace means that it's not, the Christian life is not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing. And the translator turned and looked at me, and, and I repeated, and he looked at me again and said, he said, what does this mean, pull yourself up by your bootstraps? And I said, well, if people are wearing boots, and the old ones used to have loops on them, you can't, you can't reach down and grab those loops and lift yourself up off the ground. He thought about it and said, hmm, so I'll tell them they can't lift themselves up by their shoelaces. <laughs> it's basically the same thing, isn't it? This is not a lift yourself up by your shoelaces thing. When we say always be killing sin or be killing you, and our sin is what stands between us and the promised land and we have to mortify our sin. And if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. We shouldn't go from here and say, all right, well, I've got to earn my salvation by mortifying enough sin. Nor should we say, all right, well, look, God has done His part. Now I have to do mine and mortify my sin. We shouldn't be thinking of it like this. We should be thinking of it rather that God has been gracious to us to ordain that there would be a rest for us in Christ Jesus. To send Jesus to accomplish that rest. And then to take us when we were lost and dead in our trespasses and sins and sprinkle clean water on us and purify us from our idols and give us new hearts and give us His Spirit and cause us to walk in His statutes then we should, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. It's only right, it's only fitting, and that's in fact what someone with a new heart wants to do. That's what someone in whom lives the Holy Spirit wants to do. So if you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, this sounds terrible. I want to live according to the flesh. Well, chances are you may have misunderstood what Christianity is, and whatever your conception of it is, is probably wrong, and you're probably not one. Because if you have been sprinkled with clean water and, and purified from your idols and been given a new heart and given the Holy Spirit, you're going to want to walk according to His statutes. And you're going to want to be careful to obey His commands. doesn't mean you're going to do it perfectly, of course. Even the Apostle John tells us if anyone says that he's without sin, not only is he a liar, but he makes God a liar. Because God tells us not everyone is, no one is without sin. But what it does mean is that when you sin, you're going to want to confess it, repent of it, get it right with God, get it right with the people who have been affected by it, and mortify it. You're going to want to, like the way that, loosely analogous to, the way that someone wants to take revenge when someone near them is hurt. You want to you grab your shotgun out of the cabinet. Or if you don't have a shotgun, you want to go grab a blunt instrument. And you want to you go after this thing. Because there's, a, there's a, a loathing and a hatred. That's why I say loosely analogous too, alright? But there's this sense when you sin that you want to go you want to go at that sin with your shotgun. You want to grab a blunt instrument and go beat that thing. And John Owen says in his book, The Mortification of Sin, that 
killing our sin is often a lot less like shooting our sin and more like beating it to death with a brick. He says it in old 16th century words, but that's the gist of it. He says we don't, we don't just overcome it in, a, in an instant. That's why, one reason why I jogged my mind to put that song, I ask the Lord that I might grow into the order of worship tonight. Because in that, in that song, what does it say? What's the number of it? Someone call it a 63. In that song, it says, I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my, my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. In other words, you hope that, that you could just shoot your sin and be done with it or that God would shoot your sin and be done with it. But in what way did God answer prayer for grace and faith in Newton's life? By making him fight against it. By revealing to him the hidden evils of his heart. And it became this long, drawn-out, drag-out battle. And John Owen says, you're going to hit it with a brick, and you're going to think it's dead. But then it's going to move again, and then you just got to hit it with a brick again. And you keep hitting that thing until it stops moving. And it's a bloody and an unpleasant affair. But this is how you kill your sin. It's a lot less like shooting it, and it's a lot more like beating it to death with a brick. If you have a new heart, if the Holy Spirit has been given to you, it doesn't mean you're not going to sin. But it's going to mean that when you do, you want to confess it, repent of it, and then you're going to want to grab a brick and go beat that thing to death. That's the Christian response of the heart to sin. So let us recognize that mortification of sin is not a lift yourselves up by your shoelaces thing. But in response to God's grace of justification from new hearts in the power of the Spirit, let us grab a brick and beat our sins to death. All of our sins. Universally. Let's not cherish any pet sin. Let's give no quarter here and there to any one particular category of sin that we're just not ready to deal with yet. Let us endeavor to drive the sin out of our hearts. All of it. See that no one fails to enter because of unbelief. See that no one falls by the same sort of disobedience. Let us see to it that there is no hard-heartedness among us, but that we mortify sin and that we all enter Christ's rest.